The evidence has been presented in the case against Michael Sussman, Hillary Clinton's former campaign lawyer, indicted for lying to the FBI. We spent the last two weeks combing through the trial transcripts, and today we're going to hit the highlights. What happened in the Sussman saga? Because as many people know, some of this stuff is sus, man. The mind map that you see here is available in the link tree in the description below. And so please follow along at home if you'd like to see and explore the mind map on your own. But if we zoom out, we see special counsel John Durham is right here in the middle. He is from the special counsel's office, been appointed to investigate this Trump-Russia collusion saga. And we see on the right, we're going to spend some time learning about what prompted all of this before we get into activities on the left, where we learn about what happened at the trial, get familiar with the parties, and so on. Hillary Clinton, of course, was running for president in 2016, ultimately lost to Donald Trump. But when she was running, she had two entities that she was working with. One, of course, was Hillary for America. We know a lot of these people. Robbie Mook is his name. We always say Mook here on the channel because it's a lot more condescending. John Podesta, Jake Sullivan, and Jennifer Palmieri. You know John Podesta and Jennifer were high up in the Clinton campaign. Jake Sullivan was an advisor, and he posted a tweet for Hillary Clinton that we may get to later. But Jake Sullivan now is in the current Biden White House. So he just kind of bounced from the Hillary campaign over to the Biden administration. And they were running a big, aggressive campaign. Donald Trump was their primary enemy and they needed to win. So what did they do? Well, like any campaign does, they got a bunch of lawyers involved and there's nothing wrong with that. But what they did is they hired a law firm called Perkins Coy. And Perkins Coy had a very powerful lawyer there, a guy by the name of Mark Elias. Mark Elias and other lawyers at Perkins Coy enlisted the activity, the help of a consultant called Fusion GPS. Now you see when we explore Fusion GPS, we see all sorts of different tentacles here. And you may remember from the 2016 election, things like the Steele dossier, the Trump PP tape, and so on and so forth. All of that is something that was generated by this consultant. And so Perkins Coy hired this legal consultant called Fusion GPS, which put together a very big team with a number of different people to go out and start investigating Donald Trump, really to create some oppositional research and to see if there was any connections between Trump and Russia. Or many people would argue, like yours truly, that they were sort of encouraged to create these connections even where none existed. But these are the people behind Fusion GPS, and many of these people were witnesses in the trial. But we know that Mark Elias was the campaign lawyer, the chief campaign lawyer for Hillary Clinton. Working under Mark Elias was, there he is, Michael Sussman, the person who is the subject of this entire trial. He's the guy that actually had the meeting with the FBI in 2016. So after all of these PP tapes and white papers and all of these stories, these dossiers alleging that Donald Trump was colluding with Russia or had a secret back channel to Alpha Bank, they funneled them back up through Fusion GPS, through the law firm, back over through Mark Elias, who was a high up at the law firm and the Clinton campaign, and they gave it over to Michael Sussman. Michael Sussman then had a meeting with the FBI in September of 2016, in the month right up before October, waiting for an October surprise to drop so that Hillary Clinton could easily win the 2016 election. There was a meeting that took place, and this is where the big lie starts. Sussman sits down with a guy named James Baker, general counsel at the FBI, and he says in text messages and other things we'll talk about that there was 
no reason for him to come other than he's just a good citizen coming on his own volition. He's not there on behalf of a client. He's not there representing Hillary Clinton at all. He tells that to James Baker. James Baker, allegedly, as somebody who receives this information working at the FBI, is highly concerned and says all of this is damaging to the country. It might be a national security risk. So he has notes and he has meetings with his deputies, the deputy director, Bill Priestep, Trisha Anderson, who take notes about this entire meeting. James Baker, though, didn't take any notes. He just sort of remembers what took place at the meeting. And so there's a lot of conversation taking place about what happened at that meeting. Did Michael Sussman say to Jim Baker, I'm not here representing another client. I'm not representing Hillary. Did he say that? Or did he say, I am representing Hillary? Because as we're going to see, the evidence showed during the trial, there were all sorts of billing records showing that after Sussman met with the FBI, he actually might have billed Hillary Clinton for it. And so that's really the underlying facts very, very quickly. So in this investigation, special counsel John Durham said that Michael Sussman lied to the FBI, claiming he wasn't representing a client when he was, and that would have biased the FBI. That would have been a material consequence for the FBI. It caused them to do something differently. And it's kind of a problem when you lie to the federal government. So he indicted him and charged him with that one crime. Very, very specific crime. And the trial started out of the D.C. Circuit Court, and we covered it in depth. As you can see, day one, we had a quick overview of some of the jurors here. And this was a difficult thing to assemble because they were playing musical chairs in the courtroom. And I don't think a couple people moved chairs, so I wasn't able to actually retrieve out their numbers. But here's what we know about some of the people who may or may not be on the jury. And remember, some of these people may have been stricken from the jury. So we're not exactly sure, but this is about as close as we can to the details. I know for sure that some of these people are in fact going to be final jurors. We're just not sure who. We have a teacher, a gymnast, somebody without really any political persuasion there. We see a treasury department employee or somebody who works for that branch of government, somebody who is also a DNC primary donor. And if you zoom in on this, you can see that when asked about this by the prosecutor in Voidir, it says, hey, if you would have donated to a campaign, who that who would that have been? The prosecutor asked very quickly in the questionnaire you filled out, you mentioned that you donated in 2016 to a presidential campaign. Any idea who that might be? He said, I think in the primaries, prosecutor said, well, do you mind sharing who that might be in the primaries? He said, well, probably would have been somebody on the Democratic side, probably a couple of campaigns. We also have a medical illustrator. We have another lawyer, somebody who was a Hillary donor and don't get a lot of specifics from her. The prosecutor said, you mentioned in 2016, you may have donated to somebody in uh, the, the election. And she said, well, I think I started to write that, but it could have been the 2020 election. I can't remember. And then the prosecutor said, well, I think you said that you likely donated to Hillary. And she said, well, had I donated, that's how I would have done it. And so she kind of stands out as somebody who might be political and partisan. We have a 25-year-old who loves the game Elden Ring, which I haven't played yet. A mechanic. We have a father who worked for a senator, Senator Corker which means this person might actually be sort of conservative-ish. We don't know. He still works in the government there in D.C. We have another person from the Peace Corps, another government contractor, and then 0517 is a juror who really dislikes Donald Trump. When the prosecutor asked her about her 2016 feelings, 
She said, people have strong feelings. You answered that you have very strong feelings. You said you answered that you strongly dislike Trump. And she said, and? And that you're not sure you can be impartial. And she said, yeah, if this was someone on his team or something, which many people might argue, you know, John Durham is sort of kind of somebody who might be aligned with Trump's interest. And so we don't know if that juror would consider that prosecution to be something that was pro-Trump. We don't know. But that's what the jury looks like. We also have day two, we had opening arguments in the trial where we got a lot of very technical details and foundation laid. So not a whole lot of interesting testimony, but FBI Special Agent David Martin and Scott Hellman were telling us a lot more about DNS records. And this was a big part of this trial because the hacks, the data, what was taking place was they were monitoring traffic out of Trump Tower and Trump locations and even the executive office of the presidency. I mean, they were sort of hacked into the DNS systems, which is kind of like the phone book of the Internet. And so they can see where the computers were making requests and what they were trying to access on the Internet. And they were connecting that to Trump properties so they could basically see what people in those locations were doing. Very, very problematic stuff, but they couldn't get into the nuts and bolts of it because they didn't want to confuse the jurors too much. And so they really, it was kind of surface level stuff, but still in depth enough that when you read through the transcripts, it'll make your eyes glaze over. But we learned a lot about the technical component of this and how this all works. In day three, we got some more interesting testimony because we actually heard from Deborah Fine with somebody who worked for the Clinton campaign project. We also heard from Laura Sego, somebody who testified about Fusion GPS. She was actually an employee there. She met with a journalist. Part of the issue at this trial was that Fusion was actually interfacing with journalists. They weren't doing legal work like a consultant for a law firm would. They were actually doing public relations work and they were trying to protect themselves by sort of nesting it underneath a law firm. Then we got some big testimony from Mark Elias. Well, it wasn't even that interesting. Mark Elias allegedly is one of the smartest lawyers in the world. However, when he's called to the stand to testify, suddenly can't remember anything. Very convenient how that works. Prosecutor got mostly I don't recalls from him and they went through his records, calendar invite, calendar invite, calendar invite. And they showed, they said, Mark, you met with Michael Sussman and Rodney Jaffe, who was another very, very big person in this saga. And they said, you met with these people and you met with these people and you did it on this date and this date for four hours and three hours and one hour. And you build and you build and you build and you build. Do you remember any of that? And he said, Gosh, I just don't recall. I have no idea what project that could be. I work on a lot of projects and I build a lot of time. Had no idea. And so a lot of that was to be expected. On day four, we heard a lot from James Baker, a lot of testimony from him. He was the actual guy who sat down with Michael Sussman back on September 19th and didn't take any notes about that meeting, but he has testified a lot about this and has done a lot of interviews on this topic because of this investigation. And the defense got out of him that his memory was faulty. Remember, all this stuff actually took place in 2016, long time ago, saying that he trusted Michael Sussman talked about procedural errors at the FBI. The FBI sort of botched a lot of this. He also shared with us that Michael Sussman had a badge at the FBI. And so he sort of had free reign access, even though he was not an FBI employee. And that there were text messages that took place between them back and forth that we got to really peer into. And one of those text messages was from Sussman the day before on September 18th. So the big meeting date is September 19th. 
which is when they actually met. But the day before that, Sussman sent him a text and said, hey, Jim, I'm not coming on behalf of a client. I'm coming on behalf of myself. And so then again, on the 19th, you would presume that he's in that same sort of status. And we got that out of testimony from James Baker. On day five, we jumped into Robbie Mook, or Mook as we have called him previously. And the key testimony from him, Mook was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. And he told us in his testimony that Hillary Clinton gave us the full approval on running with this Trump-Russia collusion story. Prosecutor asked, who was the highest member of the campaign who was involved in or approved the decision to turn this story over? And Mook said, well, John and I were involved. I discussed it with Hillary as well, but I believe I discussed it with her after we kind of discussed it and made the decision. Prosecutor says, so you told Ms. Clinton we want to give this to the media? Mook says, I remember, I don't really remember the substance of the conversation, but notionally the discussion was, hey, we have this and we want to share it with the reporter. And how did Ms. Clinton respond? Mook says she agreed to that. So Hillary Clinton gave the old thumbs up on some serious disinformation because as we know, those dossiers were fake and not. On day five, we also heard from Mark Chattison and another retired CIA officer by the name of Kevin P who shared that Sussman also met with them, but really the conversation mirrored the same type of meeting they had at the FBI building on day six. We heard from Bill Priestep. He was FBI assistant director for counterintelligence. And he was the guy who took notes after James Baker met with Sussman. Baker didn't take any notes, but he talked to Bill about the meeting and Bill took notes about that conversation. And so we learned more from Bill very briefly about his notes. He doesn't remember much of anything, but we got to see those notes. We also heard from Ryan Gaynor. Ryan Gaynor is somebody who introduced us to Allison Sands and David Dagon and sort of had interfaces with many other people who were researchers and Allison Sands. Allison Sands was the technical analyst. And after Sussman dropped those documents off with Baker, he sent them over to FBI in Chicago and they started to break down the documents. On day seven, we heard from more technical witnesses. We started with Curtis Heidi. Curtis Heidi told us a little bit more about materiality and part of the indictment, part of the elements of the crime explain that if you are lying to the government, it's got to be a material lie. It cannot be sort of an immaterial lie, a white lie that doesn't matter. It's got to be something that is consequential. And here, Curtis Heidi explained that this did cause a lot of ripple effects throughout the FBI. Trisha Anderson was the other person with whom James Baker had a conversation. He told her about the meeting with Michael Sussman, and she wrote in her notes sort of something that buttresses Baker's claim, saying that Sussman came on behalf of, quote, no specific client. So again, Sussman went back and we're going to see billed for his time with the FBI, but he told the FBI that he wasn't there on behalf of a client. Jared Novick was an interesting witness who came in. He was the CEO of Bitvoyant, kind of a middleman for Rodney Jaffe and many others. David Dagon, we learned, was one of the individuals who drafted one of the white papers that ended up in Sussman's hands before he took it to the FBI. And so we learned more about each of them. On day eight, the government rested their case and we started in with some defense witnesses, but the big, big witness for the government was Corey Arsenault, which was actually the summary witness. So she's actually sort of a legal assistant for the Department of Justice. And she came out and she summarized all of the documents that they got from Sussman's office, from Perkins Coy, calendar records, email invites, billing records, and so on. And she shows us, she says, here's what the billing records actually look like. On 914, 
there was a white paper prep meeting and there was a bill for it. And you see September 14th, it's billed multiple meetings regarding confidential reports, multiple white paper meetings, further meetings with M. Elias and the billing entry is for 6.6 hours. So a lot of time on that. Then we fast forward to the meeting, which is just a couple days later on 9.19. We have another billing entry. It's M. Sussman, 3.3 hours. The description is work and communications regarding a confidential project. Build to Hillary for America under general political advice. That's the date of the meeting. So he literally billed Hillary for it. On the 14th, he billed, he billed her for the prep for it. And they also presented in evidence the actual purchase of the flash drives that he dropped off at the FBI. So they got the receipts. They put a map on the screen. They said that he billed Hillary for America for the actual flash drives that he purchased on 9-13. So all of that made its way into evidence. Now, the defense started their case and they pointed to a number of witnesses from another meeting that took place on March 7th where people at those meetings actually say that Sussman brought him or brought the information to Baker on behalf of a client. You see, this woman, Tashina, said that an attorney brought to the FBI on behalf of his client. Now, Tashina was not at the meeting on September 19th. Tashina was there March 7th, way after the fact. And so she's sort of listening to other people talk. Same thing with Mary McCord, March 7th notes showing saying somewhere in here saying, yeah, an attorney brought on behalf of somebody else. But these are people who were sort of not at the original meeting and they didn't take those notes from James Baker. And so there's sort of this, this layering over of the original meeting with some sort of updated notes from a meeting that took place six months later. They brought out FBI special agent Thomas Grasso, the defense did, to really sort of say that the FBI kind of screwed a lot of this up. And they did. The FBI screwed a lot of this up. There was a close hold on this information. Many FBI handlers were sort of screwing things up with their confidential human sources. The chain of command was all totally askew. Nobody knew really what was going on or the right people knew what was going on and they limited conversations from taking place that stopped the people, sort of the, the, the lower level special agents from knowing what to do with it. In other words, they knew this information was bad at higher levels of the FBI and they maintained the secrecy so that the lower level FBI agents would just continue to sort of work the case, knowing that it was bad. The defense also brought out their own summary witness to counteract the government's summary witness. And this was not a good witness from my read at all. Brandon Charnov was from Latham and Watkins, and he brought out a big board that had a number of different colors on it. And he was trying to detail, I think, for the jurors that lawyers are busy people. And they have all sorts of communications back and forth with different entities all the time. But that doesn't mean that they were billing any specific client for a specific record. And so kind of this concept of overlapping activities, the idea being that Michael Sussman is not responsible for that one bill because he was doing all sorts of different things on that given day. And you can't really extract a bill for the FBI meeting and connect it directly to Hillary. Instead, showing that there's all sorts of different colors on there. And he says, you know, th th these different documents give us red lights and or, I'm sorry, light blue, dark blue, medium blue, different colors that all are detailed on the board. But the prosecution came out and said, that's really neat that you have all those documents there. 
But we have a specific question about September 19th. Do you have that on your chart there? And he said, what? No, to be honest, this is the first time I'm hearing about this date. He's looking around. He has no idea what date they're talking about. And so I think his entire line of uh, testimony was actually damaging to the defense more than anything. So they brought that out. They also brought out a couple character witnesses, a woman by the name of Jimma Elliott Stevens and another character witness named Martha Stanzel Gam, who said that Sussman was an inspirational mentor and that he actually had a life of pain. On day nine, the defense rested, so we didn't get any new witnesses, but we did talk about the stipulations and the jury instructions that the jurors are going to be reading and using as they deliberate. And there was a very interesting section here talking about good faith, saying a defendant's conduct is not willful if it was the result of good faith of a good faith understanding that he was acting within the requirements of the law. And throughout this trial, I was saying that we might see sort of some jury nullification here. You might see the jurors just sort of use this exception. They might say, well, you know, Michael Sussman maybe what was in fact lying, or maybe he was doing something that was a little not on the up and up, but that's because he was acting in good faith because the consequences of Donald Trump colluding with Russia were so dire because the media was so hyperbolic about this at that time. In other words, Sussman may have been justified for being freaked out and trying to get the FBI to act. We'll see if that goes anywhere. But if there is a not guilty, I think that this might be something the jurors use as a fake because, as a justification for voting not guilty. The prosecutors wanted jury nullification, sort of an exception in there. They wanted the judge to specifically say, you cannot nullify this. But the judge said, no, he said, that's a little bit outside of the ordinary regular jury rules. And so I'm not going to add that in day 10. We had closing arguments, prosecutions, I thought was very, very nicely assembled. They talked about intentional concealment. Baker was 100% confident in his testimony, FBI general counsel on cross-examination. They tried to get him to waver a little bit. He said, no, I'm 100% certain that Sussman told me that he was not here on behalf of a client. And I think that was powerful and his credibility probably landed with the jurors. The defense had a number of different arguments and this is pretty common for a defense. Here, the defense was talking about Jim Baker and his memory being bad, bad, bad. This happened a long time ago. His testimony has changed a lot and it kind of has, it has modified. He used to say one thing and he sort of changed it a little bit and then changed it back a little bit. And so he has waffled. And so maybe that 100% is not really 100%. He also distinguished between billing records and having a bill for a client and sort of creating a bill for work done for a client versus just having a client. You can have clients and not actually bill for the work for those clients. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two. Talked about a lot about billing errors, tried to bring the FBI back into this saying the FBI was involved in a lot of their own misdeeds. I mean, they kind of botched this entire production. And so blame them. Don't blame Michael Sussman. They said that even if this was a lie, it wasn't a material lie and that the prosecutor's office was engaging in borderline prosecutorial misconduct because of the pressure that they put down to bear on some of the other witnesses who were involved in the government's case. And so we've got, you can see just a whole smorgasbord of issues here. And it took 10 days to get through them all. The parties who presented the case, of course, we have Judge Cooper, D.C. Court, 
the defense representing Michael Sussman, Sean Berkowitz, Michael Bosworth, Catherine Yao, and Natalie Hardwick Rao, all out of Latham and Watkins, a big firm out of New York. And then the prosecutors were led by special counsel John Durham, but we saw Bertain Shaw, Andrew DeFilippis, Michael Kielty, and Jonathan Algor, who really did most of the presentation, cross-examination, direct exams of all the witnesses. We worked through most of the issues, nothing really left to attend to other than getting a verdict and seeing how the jurors feel about all of this. But as you can see, these tentacles just continue on and on and on. And the big question that many have are any of these other people going to be looped into this criminal prosecution? Are we going to see Rodney Jaffe charged? Anybody from Fusion GPS? People like Mark Elias? Are we going to see any other individuals from the FBI, people like Peter Strzok or Andy McCabe. Any further prosecutions are going to be brought by special counsel John Durham. We'll see if he goes after anybody from the FBI or elsewhere, but we're waiting for a verdict. We'll continue to cover this case. We hope you join us on that journey. I'd love it if you subscribe before you got out of here, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one.